Welcome to the History and Physical, the official medical student podcast of In Training Magazine. We're your hosts, Kevin Wong, Amol Donker, and Rohit Kakade. This week, Kevin and I are focusing on healthcare entrepreneurship. Our guest, Shiv Gaglani, is a student at both the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Harvard Business School. His ventures include the medical education company Osmosis, the site Quantified Care, and he's also an editor at MedGadget, a blog about medical technology. We sat down with him and picked his brain about what it's like to fill gaps in medical education, be a medical student and entrepreneur, and more. He had some great insights. Let's tune in. Uh, so thanks for joining us on the show today, Shiv. Yeah, thanks for having me. We're pretty excited for you to join us. So I guess we'll jump straight into the first question. Um, as a medical student, so much of your time is consumed with either learning about patient care or studying for tests in medicine. Um, but you've somehow managed to start two ventures from what I know of um, while writing about medical technology and pursuing another degree outside of medicine with your MBA. Um, how did you get started in healthcare technology and entrepreneurship? And I guess if you want to follow up on that, like where do you find the time to sleep? <laughs> well, that's a great question. And um, so I, I was always interested in medical tech. Um, you know, even in high school, I was doing research on uh, things like 3D printing, uh, of tissue engineering, uh, as well as stem cells. And then when I got to college, I majored in biomedical engineering. But I was always MD-PhD track because you know, research always appealed to me because you know, while medicine is, I think, one of the most noble and, and interesting fields, um, the fact that you can do research and invent something or discover something that could then affect millions of people even after you've retired uh, was something that always appealed to me, so the whole scalability factor. But throughout college, I realized um, that Bench research was interesting, but really what interested me was translational and getting it from bench to bedside, as they say. And so around senior year, I switched from MD-PhD track to MD-MBA track. And so fortunately, I can pursue those two degrees non-simultaneously. Non, uh, uh, so I did two years of medical school at Johns Hopkins and have taken the past year off to work full-time on osmosis and taking the next two years to work uh, to, to get my MBA and then finally, hopefully, finishing up the last two years at Johns Hopkins. So luckily, again, I, didn't, I wasn't trying to balance too much at the same time. And as you know, the first two years of medical school, especially at, at Hopkins where it's pass-fail, uh, can afford time for exploration, whether that's research or entrepreneurship in my case. Uh, that's interesting. So how did the school take it when you wanted to go to the dean and say, I'm switching out of the PhD program and into an MBA? Um, because those PhD programs are pretty competitive to begin with. Um, so how did they take it? Yeah, so actually I have a friend who went to Harvard's uh, HST program and decided to switch from MD-PhD to MD-MBA, um, and he was able to do that uh, pretty effectively. Fortunately, I didn't have to do the same. I was MD-PhD uh, track, so I was going to apply MD-PhD, but I decided to I decided to do uh, MD-MBA my senior year, so I never actually applied to MD-PhD. Ah, oh, Interesting. MD-MBAs, I feel like, are going to have an increasingly important role in this new age of medicine. Um, we're always used to just having MDs and then maybe like MHAs, Masters of Healthcare Administration, like overruling the MDs. And it's kind of gotten to, like, led to a lot of frustration with doctors. So to see MD-MBAs is kind of like a very heartening thing to see. 
Yeah, I think there's a proliferation of the number of MD-MBA programs, um, and more and more I'm meeting people who are interested in the degree. And, you know, I think one of the great things about it is it can be, from what I know, it can be pretty versatile. There's MD-MBAs who uh, just practice medicine but then inform their private practice for with their MBA degrees. Uh, I was talking to um, John Thomas, uh, who we interviewed for the Osmosis blog, uh, as one of the leaders in medical education. He's chair of the Federation of State Medical Boards and did his MBA after he was already an ENT resident. Um, and so he's doing policy stuff with his MBA. There's another MD MBA who's left medicine completely in his work at McKinsey. Um, so I think there's a lot of a lot of things that you can do with a degree, which is one of the appeals uh, it had for me as well. And so what was getting an MBA outside or getting an MBA outside of Hopkins like? Um, I know that Hopkins also provides its own MBA program through the business school, um, but you decided to pursue it uh, outside of the system over at Harvard. Um, what was that decision like? Yeah, so so I, I was at college uh, at Harvard. Uh, I applied to medical and business school the same year, um, and I was hoping that would help me select where I was going to go. Um, and I was really torn between going to Stanford's five-year MDMA program or doing um, Hopkins and Harvard combination and I chose the latter for a couple of reasons one was it was just uh, you know closer to home I'm, I live in Florida number two is I really wanted to focus on um, medical education while I was at Hopkins and business while I was at Harvard and so it seemed to be the right choice um, I know it adds an extra year but from what I you know I consulted a number of HBS professors and other other professors about the decision to do uh, you know four years of med school and two years of business school as opposed to a five-year combined degree and they said that you know really the second year of business school is more important than the first year uh, in terms of networking and meeting people who are interested in your same field because everyone takes the same first year curriculum it's really the second year where you explore your interests so I, I expect during my second year of HBS I'll be taking medical and education courses and meeting people who don't necessarily have MD degrees or, or backgrounds in, in medicine, but are interested in doing business in both medicine and education. And that to me was worth the, uh, I guess, the financial and opportunity cost of taking an extra year to get the MBA. Speaking of business and education, earlier you uh, quickly and briefly mentioned your new company, Osmosis. Could you describe for our audience what Osmosis is? Yeah, so Osmosis is, um, it started as a side project that my co-founder Ryan, who um, is also a medical student at Johns Hopkins, and I began during our first semester at Hopkins Men in the fall of 2011. And initially it was just a crowdsourced question bank because we realized that we didn't really have a good source of practice questions from our professors and the existing question banks were, you know, $100 a month, which was uh, pretty pretty ridiculous, we thought. Um, so we decided to team up with our fellow Hopkins med students and create a platform that helped them crowdsource questions. Soon enough, though, we started hosting course documents and doing all sorts of other things on the platform that uh, made us think that we could really make something bigger of this. And within the first year at Hopkins, 240 students crowdsourced 5,000 practice questions and answered those over half a million times. And because of that tremendous statistic and usage, we started hearing from uh, colleagues at Tufts and Northwestern and BU, and um, they wanted to try learning by osmosis, so we thought it had, had legs to it and decided to apply to a tech incubator in Philadelphia, which is why we moved up here uh, after getting accepted and have been working full-time on osmosis for the past year. And we've grown from 
240 alpha users at Hopkins to over 10,000 medical students who've answered over 2 million questions. And it's really been a great experience. I mean, one, one question I get a lot is, um, you know, how do you have time for research or how will this impact your residency applications? And it's really interesting because during the first two years I was at Hopkins Med, I had zero publications. But after working on osmosis full-time for a year, uh, we have two first author publications in um, pretty high-impact journals. So it's really directly in line, too, with uh, our career goals. Yeah, speaking about the publication you mentioned, um, congratulations on the recent publication in the Annals of uh, Medicine uh, on the article, What Can Medical Education Learn from Facebook and Netflix? Um, could you, do you mind talking a little bit more about that publication? Uh, yeah, and dimension. yeah. I mean, it's not often that when we reach, uh, read medical journals that we see Facebook and Netflix mentioned. <laughs> yeah, I know. We, we decided to include that as the, as the controversial title. Initially, it was what can... Uh, or how big data can improve medical education, but even the editor of Annals yeah, thought that was I, a little bland. <laughs> I mean, I, I do, uh, I'm a data analyst right now over uh, in New York, and, and I hate the title uh, big, data. big Data because, I mean, there are doctors who like to use the words big data, but I looked at our data sets and they're only a few megabytes at a time usually in medicine. <laughs> uh, so I, I really dislike to, to hear about it. Um, but yeah, why don't you continue talking about uh, the article? Yeah, no, exactly. And so, so you know, as you know, big data is just one small part of, I think, what's really exciting. It's really, uh, the Facebook and Netflix, they obviously have huge amounts of data, but what makes them interesting, too, is they have, both of them have these uh, automated recommendation systems. So, for example, um, you know, if you click on somebody's profile on Facebook, Facebook knows this and will preferentially start recommending status updates from that person. Um and it becomes kind of a positive feedback loop. Same thing with Netflix. Netflix will say, you know, if you like this TV show, other people who like that TV show uh, also like this other TV show, so you may want to check that out. Um, and so we thought something similar could be applied to medical education because osmosis now, we, we have the ability to host course documents, and to that end are hearing from a number of medical schools that are interested in using osmosis as a platform for hosting their own curricular information. Once we can host some of these curricular slides, we can say... We can, we can really collect a lot of data. So, for example, um, let's talk about lecture videos. Uh, most students seem to be streaming lecture videos now. Um, I think as high as 80% at some schools just watch the lecture videos. Yep, I can attest to that. <laughs> yeah, it just, it just seems to be you know, more efficient use of time, right, where you can double, double speed it. With osmosis, we're able to keep track of how long, uh, you know, say 80 students watch a recorded lecture, and of those, uh, the average stream speed is 1.6. We can potentially provide that information to the professor so they can maybe change their uh, presentations. But more interestingly, say of those 80 students who watched that lecture, 40 of them paused it at time point 18 minutes, 30 seconds, and rewound. You know, if we overlay a heat map on top of that lecture video, you can imagine that maybe the red areas could be areas where students were confused or things that needed to be uh, repeated. Um, so giving that type of real-time granular feedback is something that curricular deans, I think, would be very interested in. But more importantly, the way students learn, um, what we're doing with the mobile app is if you've used Osmosis, you know that we link your core curricular exam schedule. So we know that, for example, at Columbia on Friday, they just had a renal and reproduction exam. So the week before that, Osmosis was just sending them questions in renal and repro to get them ready for the test. We want to go even more granular. We want to know not just that they have a renal exam on May 16th, but instead that they have uh, they learned about the RAS 
system on May 10th, and so on May 11th, send them questions about RAS to get it really granular, and, and that's the whole point of why we call it osmosis. One of the reasons, actually, is to make it easy to learn passively in the background, where you don't have to spend hours or weeks studying for a specific test and then just binging, uh, binging on that information and purging it all out right after. I really like the idea that you mentioned earlier about giving curricular deans, curriculum deans, and professors feedback on how they perform and how their lecture, how effective their lecture style is. Um, at the end of courses, I think at most medical schools, what happens is we take a survey at the end when everything's all said and done, and then we then the professors get the feedback on how they can improve. So seeing something like this, where they get dynamic feedback on a week-to-week -week basis on how they're doing, I think would be huge for improving education in the long term. I agree. I think the, the lack of granularity is something that a lot of medical schools deal with, and then they, they aren't that quick to respond. I mean, it was what Lord Kelvin said, if you can't measure it, you can't improve it. And I think everyone, I mean, this is a transition that most enterprises have made, whether it's sales and marketing divisions or, uh, or the financial industry, but medical education, education in general has been a little slower to catch on. I mean, if any of our audience members are interested in finding out more about osmosis, where can they go? Uh, so our site is osmosis.org, and then from there you can navigate and you know download the free Osmosis Med mobile app on Android or, or iPhone. Great. Um, so, I mean, outside of osmosis, you also have a few other different ventures that I, I learned about while I was a student at Hopkins. Uh, one of them was uh, the physical smartphone. Uh, which I think you changed the name to recently to Quantified Care, and the other one was the Physician's Promise. Uh, do you mind uh, elaborating some more on what those were and, and why you decided to pursue them? Yeah, I think uh, my friends joke that I have ADD, um, but I'm also really good at building teams. Uh, you know, and so that's kind of how I've, how I've led to working on, on these other things. Basically, I think I just have a lot of interests, and uh, when I find problems in medicine, I'm just really interested in... Uh, in seeing what type of low-hanging fruit can be picked to improve upon those. So the way the smartphone physical emerged was, uh, you know, I write for a med tech blog called MedGadget, which is a labor of love, and um, I realized that the physical exam maneuvers I was learning at Hopkins Med were more and more becoming possible through smartphone apps and peripheral devices. Um, so, for example, a spirometry test or an ECG are now capable of doing those on, on an iPhone. And so the cold question was, could we do a complete physical exam on a patient using a smartphone and a few devices? And we debuted this concept at TED Med 2013, last April in D.C. Um, and since then, it's grown. We were invited to a lot of conferences, and we started learning that there was a lot of interest from clinicians, but they didn't really know where to get uh, these devices, which ones were FDA approved or had evidence behind them or could be, re uh, could be compensated for. Um, and so I have a team around this that's been built, um, uh, including a biomedical engineering student at Hopkins and a CTO from MIT who are, are running this company called Quantified Care um, that essentially tries to solve those problems for clinicians. It's once, how do they get the right devices and apps? Uh, we have this thing called the CARE framework, C-A-R-E, which stands for Compliance, Accessibility, Reimbursement, and Evidence. And it helps them adopt the technologies, but then once they've adopted it, we have a uh, a mobile app and a web platform that are trying to make it more easy to integrate into the actual clinical workflow. Because one of the problems that immediately emerges is the fact that this data resides just on the clinician's phone and in separate apps. 
it needs to go from app to EMR, and that's something we're, we're trying to build. Um, the patient promise in brief is just something that we realized that was affecting a lot of uh, clinicians who don't often lead by example. Um, you know, I started med school about 10 pounds lighter uh, than when I left it after two years to, to pursue osmosis full-time. I've since since lost that weight again, but, you know, it's kind of like the version of the freshman 15 in the med school, 10 at least. Um, and I know some, I actually have a friend who's in med school who started smoking again after having quit for five years. Wow. Um, That's... Yeah. It, <laughs> it, he's, since, he's since been working to quit again. It was, you know, pretty upsetting, obviously, to him, but to his family and to the friends, but you know, physicians aren't known for taking care of themselves and necessarily practicing what they preach. And that's why we started the patient promise, uh, which was to help. It was based on evidence that clinicians who practice what they preach are more likely uh, to preach what they practice, essentially, to tell patients to live healthier. And so that, that whole thing resembled, it's kind of related to the mobile app interest because I see mobile apps and technologies and the patient promises all appealing to patient engagement and uh, lifestyle modifications as opposed to reactive care, more preventive care. Speaking about uh, patient engagement, uh, when you described your, uh, the, the smartphone physical, uh, you describe a lot of these gadgets um, or devices being used in the hands of um, physicians, but what about putting them in the hands of consumers, uh, which is usually the target market for a lot of these uh, quantified self uh, devices. Um, is there interest there on your side, or is there a specific reason you wanted to focus solely on physicians? Yeah, I mean, you're exactly right. I think most companies like Apple even are focused uh, directly to consumer. Um, I think a lot of these the technologies that have been developed for them, the wearables and the Fitbits, are really great and, and are able to appeal to certain segments of the population. Unfortunately, I think that they're primarily the segments that don't necessarily need them, right? The people who, most people I know who use Fitbit uh, are people who probably didn't have to use Fitbit, um, right, in the first place. They're, they're just healthy people who were just interested in their daily stats. Um, unfortunately, the, the behavior change of these apps and um, wearables, right now it's still a very early stage. It hasn't, hasn't really shifted the needle. Um, but the reason we decided to focus on clinicians is I think eventually clinicians will be the ones prescribing these, uh, especially the ones that are most effective, the ones that are FDA-approved, um, things like WellDoc uh, has an app called Blue Star, which has been shown to reduce HbA1c levels. That is, got, you know, they're marketing directly to physicians, trying to get physicians aware of these technologies so they can prescribe them to their patients. And I see that, you know, Fitbits and whatnot will appeal directly to consumers, and hopefully, eventually, the data may even be stored in EMR. But I think um, more evidence-based, more compliant mobile health apps and devices will probably win out in the end. Um, and nobody seemed to be targeting clinicians, but that was kind of the, where we were coming from, where uh, one of the guys in our team just graduated today as an MD, uh, but has been working. He worked with Dr. Oz and was working for Practice Fusion, so we have a very clinical background and focus. Oh, so he was working for Dr. Oz. That's that's a very controversial figure in medicine, <laughs> uh, usually. Um, no thanks to his show, but, but he's actually a pretty intelligent uh, guy. W w is he also working on uh, devices or medical uh, software? It's funny. That's, that's how uh, my friend Michael Hoagland and I actually met. Is um, When he was working as Dr. Oz's head of clinical events, um, I was still reporting for Medgadget pretty regularly and went to one of the – they had something called the 15-minute physical. And I was able to show Dr. Oz the um, 
the AliveCore ECG heart monitor, uh, which actually is partnered with Osmosis. So we're kind of trying to bring this all together um, in kind of a cohesive way. But in any case, uh, Dr. Oz knows about these technologies and thinks they're pretty cool, especially with for the reasons we mentioned, like patient engagement. Um, he is, you know, controversial, I think, because he espouses um, or he, he supports and even gives showtime to some kind of non-traditional medicine approaches. Um, but, you know, he did graduate, like he was a famous cardiothoracic surgeon, still does, you know, practices there. So I think he's, he's very smart, but he, I think he just gives a voice to things that clinicians aren't necessarily comfortable with, which is alternative medicine. Um, but he knows about mobile health technologies, which is a little more mainstream than, uh, say, um, you know, Tai Chi as a cure for cancer or something like that, you know. Right. right. So we've been talking about um, starting businesses and quantified care and all that kind of stuff. And a lot of our audience members, we imagine, are very curious about what it's like to be both a med student and start a business. Um, what's it like to be an entrepreneur in medicine, specifically as a med student? And is that kind of lifestyle something that you would recommend to other medical students? <laughs> that's, that's interesting. So I would... Um... I think you could also even answer this question too, because I know you have a have a business or, or two on the side as well, um, <laughs> which I'd love to talk more about. And uh, basically, I, I think it depends on what your curriculum is and and your your aims. Um, I was unable to focus just on um, my head in the books because I just thought that you know we have such a unique vantage point as med students to see problems on the ground, but also have enough time, um, relatively compared to being an intern, say, for example, to try developing solutions for those. So I have a number of friends who are in med school who've started companies, some of whom have left med school, some of whom have left their companies, uh, some of whom are still trying to do both. And I, I think, uh, so I wrote an article for entrepreneur.com um, about the similarities between med students and entrepreneurs, and I think one of the main things is passion. I think the most successful med students I know and the most successful entrepreneurs I know find passion in both of the things they do, and um, you really can't succeed or or work the hours that we work as med students and entrepreneurs or both um, unless you're actually passionate about what, what you're doing or you see an end goal. Um, so I wouldn't recommend it for everyone. A lot of people are just doing entrepreneurship, it seems, for the sake of doing entrepreneurship because it's become easier to do. Uh, but The entrepreneurs? Um, yeah, the entrepreneurs, right? Um, it's really not as glamorous as people people necessarily think from watching movies like The Social Network. Um, even though it's a lot of fun, I mean, we have an osmosis house in Philly, and there's uh, this summer it's gonna be a lot of fun. We'll have at least six or seven people in there uh, working and, and having a good time together. But that being said, um, we did decide to take time off of med school so we could focus wholeheartedly on the venture. And Hopkins Med has been fortunately very supportive of that. I know other med schools may not be. So it really depends on, on your circumstances. But to that end, I'd, I'd be happy to chat. I've talked to a number of people who want to do that and happy to chat about any individual's uh, path. Well, could you, um, I guess, for our audience, could you come up with the top three tips or recommendations that you would give to any budding medical student, entrepreneur, or even pre-med entrepreneur? Just the top three tips off the top of your mind. Yeah, yeah, I think... Um, I think one is um, build an MVP, they say, a minimum viable product. And what that means essentially is try de-risking, making sure that you can see how much traction you could get with something without taking like the plunge to say, for example, take a year off. So one example with osmosis is we did this 
uh, again, as a side project as med students and built something that was very primitive compared to what we have right now, but was getting a lot of use. And that was a crowdsourced question bank. And we even tested the push notification thing out by sending text messages to our friends and seeing if they responded to questions. So before you take the plunge to do anything, um, making sure that you've kind of thought through what the, what the project is and whether it can have legs. Um, a second is, uh, is really passion, uh, and this is for two reasons. So osmosis started because we were passionate about the problem of binging and purging medical information. We thought that was just a silly way to learn and hadn't been changed for over 100 years, but we wanted to change that. So that was a lesson in getting frustrated and becoming passionate about a project that way. With quantified care and smartphone physical, that was more of a passion of just being very interested and excited about the new mobile health technologies. So both companies started from very different ways, but the commonality was passion, either frustration or excitement, uh, respectively. And I think a third tip is uh, the team. You know, I know a lot of people who try being entrepreneurs by themselves. It's very, very hard to to um, to succeed. I think as an individual founder, some you know, there's obviously exceptions, but uh, osmosis is where it is because you know both Ryan and I are very complementary. He's been coding since he was 11. And while I have some coding background, I was really just focused on the actual content and the idea and, and building all the teams around Osmosis. Um, everything that isn't code, I basically <laughs> am taking care of. So we're very complementary in our skill sets. Same thing with quantified care. So I think it would be risky, more risky than you want to, uh, not, de to not be passionate, to not try finding co-founders or teammates within medicine or outside and to not make sure that you're truly passionate about what you're trying to solve. Yeah, those are some really good tips. So you've given us a really good overview about what it's like to be a med student, entrepreneur, MBA candidate. Um, you've told us a lot about what osmosis does and how it makes medical education better for both the student and the professors. And um, we have one last question for you, and we kind of like to end with this question with all our podcast guests. And we're trying to bring it back to the sixth grade now, and we're going to ask you a would-you-rather question. Okay, great. Do you, do you remember the last time you got a would-you-rather question? Uh, must have been years. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a while. All right, so this is, we're going to get a little bit surreal here. Would you rather be a taco or a burrito? Oh, wow, that is, that is intense. Um, I generally, myself, I prefer eating burritos. Um, and so I would I would lean towards burrito, and I think part of that is I just think you have more stuff can fit inside. Uh, let me see if I can. Yeah. <laughs> I feel okay. I think there's a little bit of a danger there because if you like eating burritos and you yourself are a burrito, <laughs> you might end up eating yourself. Well, That's this true. Is, this is an insight into how Shiv thinks. He as an entrepreneur, <laughs> he goes for value over uh, everything anything else. Exactly. I, I just think the burrito is more well adapted, and the reason is it you know things don't leak out of a burrito as much as a of a taco, um, and that's to be that's seriously why I prefer burritos, is that I can have a contained meal. Uh, tacos frustrate <laughs> me because then I have to use a utensil to pick up all the crumbs that fall out. So so I'll stick with burrito. Million dollar question, right? <laughs> yeah. Okay, great, Shiv. So uh, if any of the listeners of this podcast want to find you on Twitter or on any of the other social networks you're on, uh, where should they go to find you? 
Yeah, so I'm just uh, at Shiv Gaglani on Twitter. Um, and, you know, I, I welcome anyone to email me, too, if they're interested. Just shiv at osmosis.org. Um, I'm happy to chat with anyone interested in med, you know, med school, entrepreneurship, etc. cetera. Uh, I just think it's great that you guys are doing this. Um, thank you for your time on this because I think bringing together people with similar interests is really how we form a community that can hopefully change medicine for the better. Okay, thanks so much. Yeah, thank you, guys. The HP Podcast is a podcast by students for students. We're looking to evolve with you, so feel free to reach out to us via email, Twitter, Tumblr, via the show notes, or on the in-training website. If you like us, please consider subscribing on iTunes and giving us a five-star rating. The HP is a member of Vocalis, a podcast network for medical students. Please listen to our partners at Vocalis Network dot wix dot com slash listen.